If you're a Kia K5 GT and Kia Forte GT owner, this is your reminder to breathe. See that sophisticated interior? Enjoy those sensations. And now, imagine how you look from the outside and that speed that only a Kia GT sedan can give you. Sorry, I can't help but get excited. For those lives full of thrilling emotions, the all-powerful, all-fun Kia GT sedans. Kia, movement that inspires. Limited inventory available. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. More boxing history coming at you. You know how it goes. That's how we do it, man. But I'm here with my buddy, author and filmmaker, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and we are reliving some early 2000s stuff. Wild, wild times, man. Wild times. Yeah, we're, we're going back to a fight. This has been really fun for me to go back to some of these fights where you had a view of it in real time, one way. And looking back on it, you're like, what was I thinking about that fight? And similarly, we're looking at Prince Nassim Hamad, and I, I think it's the biggest career reevaluation I've had to make it, really ever since I've been a fan of boxing, going back 22 years to look at this fight. I mean, it was astounding, and, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it with you. Yeah, Hamad is definitely a fighter that... Um... <clears throat> As we were speaking prior to recording, uh, I mean, we're we're kind of focusing on the Marco Antonio Barrera versus Prince Nassim Hamed fight, but obviously you have to get into Hamed's career. And I do think that it's intriguing being able to kind of have that view as it was live, you know, being able to kind of watch it live, have your opinion watching it live. And then obviously we're different people now. We've grown, we've changed, we've we've gone back and been able to kind of with a more mature mindset. Uh, after Prince Nassim Hamed lost to Marco Antonio Barrera, the prevailing him, you know, the resounding him was just that Hamed was never anything. You know, he was always overrated. He sucked, he blah, blah, blah. He was the epitome of like the overrated British fighter or whatever. Yeah. And so that really carried on that, that mindset really carried on through the ages. And a lot of people just kind of dismiss Hamed's career because of the Barrera fight. When in reality, he had an entire career before that. And it's, it was a worthwhile career, a very good career. And so being able to go back and kind of reassess that years later, after a lot has happened and both guys are pretty much long gone from the sport is, you know, it's, it's opening. at least it should be eye-opening. I think it really is. I mean, this fight, I didn't realize it took place as long ago as it did, April 7th, 2001. And it's interesting to go back to that time because you have to really put it into context where Oscar De La Hoya is kind of the big star of boxing, really. And Floyd Mayweather is still a year away from fighting his two most contested fights, most contentious fights against Jose Luis Castillo. That's 2002. But we fought both of them, actually, in April and December of that year. So Mayweather is nowhere near the conversation of boxing's greatest fighter. That's Roy Jones Jr., probably, in terms of the pound-for-pound -pound best. So it's, it's interesting to see where Hamad kind of landed in America, where he's made such a name for himself in the UK, 
we really have never seen what his skill set is, I think, in the history of boxing. And the question was, has he fought the requisite opponents to demonstrate that he is as good as his potential suggests and the hype? And my opinion of him at the time was completely dismissive. I just found him so annoying. He's more annoying. I mean, he, he basically is a living Ali G. He is what Sasha Baron Cohen probably used part of his DNA of the the Ali G show of somebody who's Middle Eastern pretending to be a caricature of sort of like a hip hop, like rapper or something like that. Like just really trying to get on the nerves of everybody. So you'd want to see him lose and pay to see him lose, which became part of the DNA of Money Mayweather. However, he also was arguably one of the most offensively gifted fighters pound for pound of all time in terms of the risks he was willing to take to score knockouts, many of which he was off balance for. He was firing them off from angles that we hadn't seen knockouts before consistently. So he is such an interesting figure that he's kind of a blur in terms of you're trying to look ahead to how good is he and you're trying to make sense of where he came from And then we have the Kevin Kelly fight where he puts on, in my opinion, a fight of the year, probably was a ring magazine fight of the year. Um, But then a few years later, this great contest, this, this kind of crucible against Barrera, but a lot of components of that fight, I wasn't aware of at the time. So the idea that he got exposed, which I'm not disagreeing with, but to put it into context with, he came into that fight off of a broken hand. In eight weeks, he lost 35 pounds, according to his camp, and he just did not train properly, even though he had Manny Stewart in his corner. It really changes the complexion of of the meaning of that fight, which doesn't take anything away from Barrera being at the right place at the right time in optimal condition, but it can influence how we reevaluate it. At least it did for me. Yeah, it, there's there's no question. I mean, and it's not even like we're making ex- we're we're not part of the team. We're not making excuses for anybody. So it's like it doesn't really matter to us, especially twenty some odd years on. Um, but trying to just find the explanations, trying to kind of uh, observe exactly what happened going into this fight and who these fighters were. And that being said, you know the winner. A lot of the focus is going to be on Ahmed, obviously, because he's yeah. generally speaking the more interesting character. But um, Marco Antonio Barrera, in his own right, and this is part of the reason why this this win was so effective for Barrera and why it did so much for him. He's very understated uh, as a fighter, at least he was at this time. Um, without going piece by piece through his career, Mark, Marco Antonio Barrera comes from Mexico City. And he comes from a family that actually, um, interestingly, at least interestingly to me, being somebody who loves movies, his family supplied uh, props for film sets and stuff like that and built film sets. And so uh, in Mexico City, and for anybody who knows film or knows about Mexican film, um, a lot of Mexican film in like the 1950s, 60s, 70s, mirrored a lot of the aesthetic of what was going on in the U.S. And so Mexico City in particular was a big place for film. And Marco Antonio Barrera's family, being from Mexico City and around this place, you know, they were big in the film industry. 
Marco Antonio Barrera comes from a little bit of money and didn't need to fight. He never really had to worry about where food was coming from or whatever. Um, and so for a lot of people, I think that didn't that didn't kind of sit right <laughs> with a lot of people who, um, regardless of ethnicity, the stereotype is that in order to be an effective fighter, you have to be hungry. You have to come from loss or need or something like that, some sort of squalor, or perhaps that's just, you know, the most effective way. And so I think a lot of fighters who do not come from those places are a little bit more easily dismissed for that reason. And Barrera was one of those fighters, at least early on. But one of his big advantages was that he got to the Great Western Forum in Southern California in LA, where, uh, well, in Inglewood, where uh, boxing it obviously was not in a place where it was maybe 15 to 20 years earlier in LA in like the late eighties and early nineties, but it, it was experiencing something of a resurgence. And when Marco Antonio Barrero began fighting there in the late nineties, I believe it or a late eighties or early nineties, whatever it was, he gained a following in Southern California, which uh, that along with being a good fighter and being a well-schooled fighter, got him to be on the debut boxing HBO boxing after dark show against Kennedy McKinney. Now, obviously Barrera, even at this point was already an established fighter and he was not just some like chump or something like that, but that was really the kind of jump start for him into the mainstream consciousness of like the boxing, you know, U S boxing public or whatever. And so from that point, there were a lot of up and ups and downs, even from there for Marco Antonio Barrera. And to think is only like what five years or so, uh, between that point and the Hamed fight, losing to Junior Jones twice and being basically dismissed and, you know, uh, pretty much thought of as done, you know, that was all he had to give was he had that kind of early burst and now Junior Jones has pretty much taken him out. And so uh, and then finally facing Eric Morales and again, giving everything he had appearing to win the fight, but losing the fight and obviously taking a decent amount of damage. And again, being kind of just dismissed. So uh, uh, this understated character, you know, overall really figures into the narrative of the Hamed fight, you know, especially contrasting with Hamed, who also came from money, you know, uh, compared to a lot of fighters, but personality-wise, absolute foil. Yeah, it's a really interesting point because my mind is going directly to Muhammad Ali, who I think always positioned himself as being the ambassador to a group of his fans, especially against Joe Frazier, this is illustrated, where he used racial taunting against Frazier, positioning him as a champion for white people, conservative America. And, and really, even though Joe Frazier came from a family that worked on like share, sharecroppers, I mean, as, as much an ambassador as you could possibly be for African Americans who are exploited by institutional racism and lack of opportunity, um, Ali used it against them as a bullying tactic. And, and where did the Ali ultimate, And I'm sorry, but the ultimate overall irony for both of them being that both of their careers early on were more or less owned by groups of old white men. And that too, and that you're absolutely right about that. Um, it, the difference being is that Frazier wasn't a hypocrite about it. Ali was. Of I course, mean, he was a glaring hypocrite in in many ways. You know, in terms yeah. of uh, hindsight, has given us a lot of you know insight about those yeah. situations and have kind of you know changed it. 
And I love Ali, but at the same time, for all of the veneration he gets for his character in terms of the courage he demonstrated in the ring, when his best friend speaks truth to power with Elijah Muhammad, a guy named Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali is the first one to throw him under the bus. He deserves to be killed for what he's saying. Why? Because he was lying? No, because he was actually telling the truth. And I know he said subsequently that it was the greatest regret of his life, but you also see with his courageous stand, moral stand against the Vietnam War. I'm not pro-Vietnam War, but he it uses religion as his justification for, for being exempt from it, has absolutely no problem serially cheating on any woman he was married to throughout his life, so, which is, I think, punishable by death in the Quran. So he had no fear of that. So it was very much a la carte for, for Ali. So what I think is interesting, though, is if you... Are if you have the agency to choose to become a boxer, you get to create these constructs in a way that you don't if you had no other chance. And I think it, we think of like as you're you're saying, the stereotype is you know if you come from the most frightening place, you inflict that terror on your opponents. But sometimes it's the opposite. Ali was not soft; he was the meanest fighter that you could you could be. And and similarly. Yeah, yeah, that's such a conundrum, you know, and I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt you. Uh, please, you know, go back to where you were in a sec, but that's such a conundrum because it's like, what's what's more dangerous? Somebody who has to fight and has no choice or somebody who fucking wants to wants fight? To fight. What well, that's the, the fuck? That's you know what I'm saying? Thing. Yeah, I mean, we like to think we're, we're a society where like the lowest common denominator of entertainment is sort of serial killers and true crime. But somebody who's a forensic psychologist who obsesses by choice over all, all the whole resume of serial killers is quite different than somebody whose pathology is I am this way, but I had no choice in choosing it. We don't judge the person <laughs> right? who chose you know? it, but the one who had no choice, we, we scrutinize, oh my God, what a sociopath, as if it's this moral indictment. Like somebody like would off. Yeah, look at you beating off about it, you fucking weirdo. Exactly right. And and we as a society do the same thing. But we say it's not about us. It's a, it's about them sort of thing. We, we care about the victims. What was their name again? I don't remember because I'm too obsessed with a serial killer. So I think with Barrera, it's interesting that him, as you say, coming from middle class, upper middle class position, chose to be here. And that kind of attitude result, I mean, he was as tough as they can, they come. And I think it's just really intriguing. Like one thing that Roy Jones Jr. told me, we we did a podcast while I was at his at his ranch. I remember. It is he told me that one of the most interesting revelations for him once he started fighting fighters from outside of Pensacola, especially inner city fighters from around the United States, is how terrified they were of everything. He said we, there's this attitude that if you if you're Mike Tyson coming from the roughest dungeon in Brooklyn, you're not afraid of anything because of what you've overcome. But the truth is you're afraid of everything, is what Jones told me. They were afraid to have the lights off at night. They were afraid of spiders. A guy from the country is, and I say this as something, my dad grew up in the country, my grandfather grew up in the country. You're killing stuff all the time. It in, is in like, Roy is country as fuck. That's what people don't as realize. Fuck, as fuck. If I, if I was on his property, we'd go look at his pond and there'd be a lizard and I'd be like, oh, wow, lizard, how beautiful. He'd be like, yeah, can I see it? And he'd fucking throw it into the pond so the fish would eat it in front of us and be laughing about it. And I was like, you know, I, I didn't really want to kill that lizard, Roy. And, <laughs> you know, his attitude towards 
bullfighting, uh, I think historically, maybe dogfighting, you know, he he liked fighting. Um, this is a guy whose entire house was decorated with fighting cock murals and stuff. That was a big part of his life growing up. He is not somebody who views it the way I think society has moved into a sort of PETA attitude about pets and animals, which I am very much one of. Um, but there, there is just a, I think, a very gross misconception about people who come from really terrorized, vulnerable backgrounds, that it makes them tougher. I mean, in some ways, I'm sure it does. But I think what you see with Barrera and Hamed and Ali is sometimes you're even more frightening if you choose to be here as opposed to you were drafted into it. And and I mean, I obviously do this thing jokingly. And I don't mean to like offend anybody with that, but I do think that there is an element and we've talked about this several times, you know, the, just the kind of uh, neural anatomy, the, the psychology, you know, psychiatry, whatever you want to call it, the mentality it takes to want to be a fighter. Cause I mean, you talk about uh, all the time fighters trying to retire and they can't like, they feel like that, you know, they're, it's like an addiction. Right. And that's different. You know what I'm saying? Like being hooked in and not being able to leave, especially financially, is that's different. But we're talking about wanting to be in there. A lunatic, you know, somebody who who's like, I feel safe in there. You know, that takes a different kind of mentality than your average person or your normal person. And so, it, but then on top of that, on top of that initial layer of being a fighter we have these other fighters who are like you know they have that choice they don't have to be there you know it's not just a fight like they're choosing this profession and full-time and doing it like all of the time which is just a, it's something else entirely yeah and i think we have a word for it it's sadistic they enjoy making people suffer in this context and Ali was such a sadist. You can see the pleasure he takes in making people quit. And I mean, I've tried to explore this as a realm. When I look at arenas of ambition, what is the common link with the people who get to the top? We have mandated that they have to be complete sociopaths in order to get there. Because there's no way to casually get there. There's no way. All of the ways that we venerate a good human being who's considerate of other people, has compassion, has empathy... Where are they at the top of the pecking order in these yeah. arenas of ambition? Nowhere. Well, and even so, it, it can only be manifested in really specific ways or we don't like it. That that too. That too. So, I mean, if you look at any of these guys that get great, Michael Jordan at the, at the you know Hall of Fame speech, what is the entire contents of the speech for 25 minutes or whatever? Grievance. Grievance. And you think, how can he? One time when I was in eighth grade, this guy tripped me. It's every person in his life. I took it personally. I took it personally. My dad never gave me credit. I was in competition at rivalry with my brothers. It's every opponent, even teammates. He's punching out Steve Kerr. He is a horrible human being and an absolute extraordinary and, athlete. And I think that was deflating and very enlightening for a lot of people who had this idea in their heads that, you know, Michael Jordan, potentially and likely the greatest basketball player of all time, hero, greatest, you know, got to be a great right. guy. We've seen him in the movies. We've seen him on the shows. But then you actually listen to him in interviews and you're like, this guy's an absolute dickhead. It's, it's really complex because Ali, too. I love Muhammad Ali. 
But was it more courageous to stay in there or would it have been more courageous for him to leave at an early place? I think what we saw is that it would have been more courageous in, in, in the sense of where he is coming from. He is addicted to this. It was, it's not brave for somebody who's addicted to smoking to continue to smoke. It's not brave for a compulsive gambler. Yeah, you're not facing down death. You know, no. you're just what the issue is, you know, it's like in a confessional memoir, sometimes it is brave for somebody to talk about those things. There's other people who can't stop talking about every trauma or perceived trauma that's ever happened to them. We're seeing this with Prince Harry and Meghan. At a certain point, people were really supportive of them. And now it's like, oh, they're trying to yeah, catch every other day it's some new fucking thing. And it's just some like <sighs> That's right, is is attaining status through victimhood, attaining virtue through victimhood. And I'm not saying there can't be virtue in it, but it's not the same thing. It You don't automatically become yeah, virtuous. You, because you can't re-victimize yourself and, right. and and keep keep latching on to the fucking virtue. You know, like at some point it starts to fade. <laughs> that That's it. So I just think that we, you know, it's that saying about beware meeting your heroes, because if you scratch a little bit on who these people are and what motivates them, generally it's not their virtue that drove them to the heights they got to. It's demons and it's dark elements of their personality that deserve often at least as much credit as the virtues of their character. But we like to present it as if it's just the virtue that gets them to these high points without wanting to look at the other side of it. And what I'm trying to say is, is that where we are now, remember back in like the 1970s, hockey players are smoking cigarettes in the locker room and drinking after games. There's no nutrition. Um, you're, you're attracting a very different breed of people than what is required now, where basically you have to be an indentured servitude to the sport you want to be in by about the age of six in order to have a hope in hell of making it. You know what I mean? As opposed to sort of falling into it, you know, um, uh, Wilt Chamberlain being like Olympic caliber at nine sports or something by the time he's 17. Um, yeah. That's I remember, not happening anymore. I remember one time Isaiah Thomas said in this documentary, like from like the 80s, this dude, they asked him, uh, you know, what what are the chances of somebody making it in the NBA? And he said, the chances of somebody making it in the NBA are like walking through the jungle and not getting bitten by a mosquito. Huh. Good one. And I mean, I, 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 that stuck with me. And obviously I saw this shit when I was like fucking eight, you know, and probably still was playing basketball. And that was deflating. No, but you know, uh, but honestly, uh, the kind of mentality it takes, the intensity, the dedication, it's not healthy for like a child, you know, it's not healthy for people that young and to give up their no. lives and whatnot. But Point being, you know, steering it back toward these guys, Barrera and Hamed in particular, um, you know, what do you think, what do you think motivated Nassim Hamed? What do you think was it? Because, um, I mean, full disclosure, we both watched a couple of documentaries to kind of prime ourselves for this and whatnot, did some reading. But Nassim Hamed uh, and his story coming from Sheffield and uh, coming up through the Brendan Engel gym. Brendan Ingle tells the story in that in that one documentary. It's called "Licensed to Thrill" uh, from like '95 or '96. So I mean, it's it's a ways back, and it was while still uh, Hamed was still, you know, not quite reaching his peak, but obviously ascending. What do you think it was that really motivated Hamed? Well, 
I think one of the best openings I've ever read in sports literature is Richard Ben Kramer talking about Ted Williams. And he begins it with few, few men try for best ever. And Ted Williams is one of those. I think Hamed is similar. I think Hamed looked at Muhammad Ali. He would have looked at Lomachenko. He would have looked at Gaddy Ward. He would have looked at Tyson and thought, that's where I want to be. I want to represent that before my career is over. And he was willing to risk everything to do it. He was willing to risk, risk everything in terms of the training that he did, uh, unbelievably dangerous style to implement. And he had the balls to go through with it for his whole career, really up until Barrera, where something changes dramatically, which I didn't realize at the time. But I think that that was his attitude. And I was too blinded by the hype at the time, but going through like the documentary that you recommended to me, going through his highlight reel and looking at some early fights. And I was kind of like, as much credit as, as like a Lomachenko gets or a Mayweather, I, I don't think Hamad would have had trouble fighting like a, a Mayweather in terms of like gross risk aversion. What he reminded me of is bullfighting in terms of to be the top matador unlike every other great athlete in every other sport the better you are the safer you can play but the better a bullfighter you are the more dangerous it is for you because you have to accept more risk that is where hamad went in terms of who he wanted to be in boxing and you can criticize him for it you can say that was a silly choice mayweather can say like i retired with an o like like clearly i'm better because of that o but in terms of you go back and watch this guy's fights, you see greatness. You see him risking for greatness the whole time. He is auditioning for greatness throughout his career. And sometimes looking a little silly with knockouts and stuff when he gets knocked down, jumps up. Just the way Ali did when Frazier knocked him on his ass, jumped up. The way you get it moves you to see that kind of spirit. Um, and, and Mayweather too, when Mayweather is getting clocked by Mosley, the way he gathers his composure and you go, anybody who said if he'd been knocked down, he would have been exposed. I don't believe it because I saw what he looked like when he got hit and he had more composure than the guy who hit him with a shot that almost knocked him on his ass. So full credit to Mayweather. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think that there's an element in my notes where Hamad reminded me the way Leonard fought against Duran, where he was coaxed into fighting a very dangerous style was the baseline for Hamed. Leonard moved back to a style in the second Duran fight where it's like, that's the smart way to beat him and humiliate him. My attitude is he knew he couldn't beat Duran the way he fought in the first fight if Duran was in shape. Um, and I think the other thing is, this is an era where Roy Jones Jr., right around this time, loses a controversial disqualification to Montel Griffin, comes back in a rematch. And I think a lot of people, I think you and I have talked about this and agreed, that was the best that Jones Jr. ever looked was in the rematch against Montel Griffin. What did he say after he achieved one of his most iconic knockouts ever? He apologized and said, I didn't want to fight this way. Well, that's the way Hamed fought every time, every minute of every round, except in the Barrera fight. That's who he was and wanted to be and was willing to risk everything to be. So that's what I just found so exciting. And I was really ignorant to at the time because I found his attitude so annoying, but I didn't give him credit as like a, a wrestling heel that he clearly was that was wildly successful as a heel. But unlike Mayweather, when he won, it was also exciting. 
when Mayweather won, letting the air out of the balloon, you go, okay, I get it. Like he he figured that guy out. He defused the bomb. That was not Hamed style. If he defused your bomb, he also wanted to knock your head off and put you on his highlight reel where he was really annoyed. And that's what makes him just so exciting. And it's so interesting that he's not talked about more. Yeah, it's it's um it's it's actually pretty amazing that kind of like dichotomy, that uh departure from where he was prior to the Barrera fight and just the narrative going forward ever since the Barrera fight. So, I mean, we've, you've brought up the Kevin Kelly fight. Um, and I mean, even, even the Kelly, the Kevin Kelly fight was, you know, well into a career already, you know, um, so kind of going back to that documentary, it tells a little bit of the story of Hamed and his entrance into boxing. <laughs> I mean, Brendan Ingle, he uses some, I guess, let's say colorful language. I remember watching the documentary before, but I guess I just never noticed him saying it or, or, or wording it the way that he did. But he said that he had seen Hamed on the street and that he was either fighting or messing around with some kids and that he was avoiding them and basically doing that kind of defensive movement that he did even as a kid. Um, and that apparently there was some issue with neighborhood kids and Hamed's dad had brought him into the gym and asked Brendan Ingle to take him in and start training him. And Brendan Ingle did. And so you all kind of have to remember that this is a time too where it, that's kind of amazing that it even happened that way because Harold Graham uh, would have been, you know, the British middleweight champion around this time. And he would have been a, a pretty popular staple of the Brendan Ingle gym and a fairly popular fighter overall in Britain. And so, um, you know, it's pretty amazing that he would just take this kid in like that. And actually, if you look at a handful of the post fight uh, photos from a few of uh, Harold Graham's fights, you can see a kid, Hamed as a kid, there in the background in the ring, like, you know, like holding the belt and stuff like that um, with the team. So, I mean, obviously he was around boxing from a very young age and he was around high-level boxing from a very young age. And also, interestingly, Brendan Ingle taught Harold Graham. I mean, it was probably a mixture of teaching him, but also uh, allowing his natural assets or tendencies or whatever to, to come into play as pretty much any great trainer would. But Harold Graham had a very similar style. Um, Probably his most famous fight or most infamous fight was the knockout to Julian Jackson. But prior to being knocked out, I mean, he's taken Julian Jackson to school, looking awkward as hell. You know, Julian Jackson's having a hell of a time catching him. And that that was that slippery style, that very difficult defensive style where you can hit somebody from any angle and move around and just never really be pinned down. Um, but the difference, of course, between Harold Graham and Nassim Hamed, even as a fairly young lad, was that Hamed could bang. He could really fucking punch. And that was one of the big differences. So he was able to employ this herky-jerky, weird, awkward, angling style. But then when he countered, it was scary. It was massive. And so, um, you know, coming up through the amateurs, he was a very celebrated amateur even. And um, I can't remember off the top of my head what he won as an amateur, but he won a few different titles, I think national titles as an amateur. Um, but yeah, he was considered a prized pupil and a prized prospect. 
Uh, what changed very quickly, though, was I think we've talked already about the mentality that it takes to be a fighter. And then on top of that, I think the point that we're trying to hammer home is that in order to stand out the way that you stand out as a Hamed, as an Ali, obviously not to say they're the same or whatever, but the way their personalities stood out, it probably takes some measure of like megalomania, you know, to to really yeah. get to that point. Well, and, and reinforced by a religious a sort of messianic approach to what's who's allowing them to win. I mean, as he says, and they use it against him at the end in a way that's quite interesting. If it's written, if Allah has written that I will win, I can't lose. And I think Lampley at the end says, I, I think Allah knows the name Barrera and spells it out. And, and, and Foreman takes issue with, with his co-announcers sort of having attitude about, about Hamed. And, and I didn't necessarily see that, but I mean, I, you talk about him. I mean, I think he's one of the best punchers that boxing's ever had, because I think the way that he's in his arsenal is unlike any other fighter I've ever seen. It's, it's, he has blazing speed. It's not Roy Jones speed, but he has more power than Jones. He, he's scoring knockouts that Jones couldn't score in terms of just punching power in his weight class, because even stuff that gets blocked reminds me of sort of like Golovkin. There's that great series where Golovkin here at MSG was hit in the face by, I think it was Macklin. And as he's hit, he counters off balance as he's falling back with an arm shot that knocks him out. And Hamed does it all the time and even does it defensively in a way that it's interesting he doesn't get the credit that a Lomachenko will get or Rigandiao would get for their defense. Because I saw one series against Kevin Kelly where Hamed is hit and falls totally off balance. His head is way up there, so it, it's a more dramatic way that he takes the blows than most people. And as Hamed is falling back, he takes three steps, switching the stance each time. And is slipping punches as he's stepping back off balance simultaneously. I've never seen a fighter do it. I've never seen a fighter even practice it in a gym, let alone in a fight against a fighter of the caliber of Kevin Kelly. And he's doing it fluidly. It's not like a, a set thing. Just as he's switching his stance fluidly in the way that Tyson used to. When Tyson's cornering guys and scoring about half of his early knockouts, it's not him switching the stance to sort of symbolize something to the crowd about what he can do fighting with both hands or in both, both positions. It's that what is available as an opportunity can be capitalized more efficiently by switching stance. And Hamad, Hamad does it all the time and he does it always for very good reasons instinctively because of how much preparation he's done and sparred with it that he's just able to do that like Ali could it, it not switching stances yeah. but the stuff Ali was doing was because he always did it and he just did it better than anybody thought you could do it so boy Hamed like the tools that he had and how he'd sharpen them um like they, they made a joke at his expense by saying not only did he not read the book of how to be a boxer, he didn't read the table of contents. Well, maybe so, but like Kanye West once joked, like, I can't even play a note on a piano. I can't read notes. Like Paul, Paul McCartney couldn't read notes, still can't sort of thing. So some people can't, I mean, read music, I'm saying. Um, some of the people that don't go that route create their own thing and it becomes majestic. Because somebody wasn't there saying, no, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. They just said, where are you going with this and try to nurture you to where you want to go? 
And Hamed yeah. had that and was able to create something that I just I've just never seen anything like it. So it, it's not that it doesn't have liabilities and gigantic risk, but is that something that we want to celebrate? Or do we want to look at the guy, the Mayweather, and say this is the ultimate example of a precision athlete who's always disciplined, who never takes an unnecessary risk, and no fighter was able to overcome that obstacle? I give him full credit for that, too. Who would I rather watch? Very easy. Very, very easy. And 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 Hamed gives you everything Money Mayweather did in terms of you wanting to see his head taken off. But you watch the Kevin Kelly fight. You don't even need to watch it. You could be blind and just listening to the crowd is exciting. And the most excitement that Mayweather ever generated was when he was almost knocked out. That's also part of his legacy that that we don't talk about. But it we but we should because it's a component. So uh you know, I think I think this coming to Barrera after what he showed in Kelly in the Kelly fight, especially the way the Americans have an attitude about Hamed. It, I think there's a lot of xenophobia about his background, not just the UK stuff, um, but the way he wears Islam on his on his sleeve um, and literally on his trunks when he goes against Barrera. Um, he, he has some things that he even gets the people associated with the fight where he's offering thanks to uh, Muhammad as a prophet and stuff like that. Like he really wants what he's doing to be seen in the context of Allah and Islam. And that, you know, it's, it's interesting. This is April, 2001. Probably that would be a risky proposition to do. I don't know, several months yeah. later after some event that took place. HBO wouldn't have done it then. No, I think, I think not. Yeah. And, and no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually really happy you brought that up because there are a lot of kind of complexities about that to, that obviously extend to present day um you know i i, I do want to get back to the technical aspect of it in a second because i think that there's something also interesting there like with the kind of improv improvisational style that he employed but um i do think it's important to kind of what you touched on to talk about that because um there's a serious anti-islam sentiment even now yeah, uh, not just in the UK, but just using the UK as an example. Um, and they're they're battling with a lot of the same kinds of things that the US is battling with as far as extremism mindsets and shit like that, specifically far right mindsets. And uh, I, th I thought it was also really interesting watching back a number of his fights, watching back. Uh, there was another documentary little prince big fight that leading up to the the barrera fight that talks about a lot of the things that happened which is awesome it's yeah, an awesome it's, documentary. it's pretty detailed yeah like it's, yeah. it actually goes into a lot like follows him into his hotel which is like a massive palatial suite and, and shit. it's just clean like it's it the way it's done is is it's as if like martin scorsese and raging bull having a non-boxing person jump into boxing sometimes can make it a lot more interesting than the way boxing people would present a great boxer. Yeah. And this is a prime example of that. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, like there's, there's a lot of stuff going on and what's really interesting to me is leading up to that fight in the few years leading up to that fight, there's still a lot of British and kind of national support for Hamed Big where, time. you know, and I mean, these days I really, 
I don't know where the Venn diagram of that would be, you know, how much overlap would be. And so that's what's really interesting to me. And obviously, 9-11 was a massive catalyst. Uh, it created so much anti-Islam just mania uh, that that changed so much as far as how this kind of matchup could be perceived about how Hamid could uh, attempt to be an ambassador for Islam and the way that he did it. And I think that there might have even been some criticism within that community of the way that he was doing it based on some of the things said in that documentary that some people were kind of like, yeah, you know, he's bringing a lot of attention, but he's also kind of making a fool of himself and stuff like that, which was also what a lot of people felt about Ali at the time. You know, there's, it, I know it, it, it all gets kind of neatly packaged up for history's sake, but obviously we now are able to look at it with a more complex eye and whatnot. And so that being said, uh, I do think that that's a really interesting aspect of it. And it's also really interesting that kind of Hamed um, uses that as fuel in the lead up but then also falls back on that afterward. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, you mentioned Ali a lot. He's now venerated as a secular saint, and and his his role in society is that he's for civil rights. But he was really anti civil rights. He was anti Martin Luther King. He was pro segregation. He was enormously misogynistic, gleefully misogynistic in a lot of his views about where women belong sort of thing. So we we have to remember there is an actual record of, of what his positions were on a number of things. I'm not saying he's not allowed to evolve. I'm not trying to cancel out. Sure, sure, sure. But we, we can't just say, boy, he's so likable. We just love him. Like John Lennon beat the shit out of women by his own admission. It's almost never brought up. Why? Because anybody who didn't know that fact, he described himself as a hitter of women, plural. Leading, leading into his relationship with Yoko Ono, he beat. I, I think he even described himself as a serial hitter of yeah, women. He, he was. So we just kind of have to keep in mind that, you know, especially this is, we're, we're talking right after Dana White has been videoed slapping his wife in response to with her the allegations him. against Geronte Davis, you know, et cetera. That, that's, that, that's right. But we ha we also just have to know that. Because somebody is deeply liked, we do treat them very differently than people we didn't like. And I remember like Tom Hauser told me something. I hope I'm not talking out of turn about this, but he mentioned that Chocolate Hauser prides himself on making hot chocolate sauce, fudge sort of thing for ice cream. Ali was the most obsessive ice cream person that I've ever heard of from people who, who knew him. And so when he came to visit Hauser, his, his biographer, Hauser made this hot fudge sauce with with a bowl of ice cream and after the after it was all eaten ali was licking the bowl because he loved it so much and hauser was so thrilled just thinking like wow he really likes it. it's so sweet to see this the, the greatest fighter of all time that this is his attitude towards ice cream then he thought how would i feel if mike tyson did that i'd be disgusted i'd be completely disgusted that he's licking the bowl like that that's the point i'm trying to make they're doing the same thing but because of our preconceived notions about who they are, we view it totally differently. And the same is true with transgressions. Is Ali, we don't really hold him accountable for a lot of the really shitty fucked up things he did. Tyson, there's a, a weird mixture, like convicted rapists more marketable after jail. That's kind of weird. But 
you're right. Like the way some people wear Islam on their sleeve or Evander Holyfield with Christianity, where it almost becomes like holy, mini holy wars, gladiatorial holy wars with the fights they're having, as if God is really taking time out of everything else to just pay attention to what's going on in this ring. It, it, it casts like a weird tent, like, like the, the complexion of it feels gross to me as an atheist. And it's, it's kind of yeah. weird at the end of the Barrera fight where Hamad is just sort of like, oh, you know, Allah didn't want me to do it. So it's again very a la carte. No matter what happens, yeah, it it's it was his plan, and you're like, okay, yeah. okay. see, like we're we're trying to tread as lightly and intelligently as like as we can, but I think that it's also you have to take into account that both of us are like, you know, I I, I would describe myself as probably agnostic agnostic leaning toward atheism, and you you know said you're an atheist. So well, I'm clearly... not an atheist because to disprove something that you need to prove it, I don't need to prove anything. I just believe in one less God than you. <laughs> if well, you and, believe in one. And that's, and that's kind of my position too. And, but it also extends to like a, I'm just not very interested in partaking in religion. So right. v- viewing these kinds of things and especially fighters, for instance, who use re- religion as a crutch is kind of how I view it is like, you know, to me, that's boring. And I don't really want to hear it too much. And when I hear a fighter do it a lot, it's like, Ugh, I just, I just don't like it. And that was not in that context back then. Cause I didn't really view it that way, like Hamed and whatnot, but especially now. Um, but, but also being able to kind of see this. And I mean, um, I don't think I heard Barrera mention anything about God in his post fight interview, which is also in a way somewhat, you know, you might expect uh, many fighters of any ethnicity to say something like that, but it's obviously viewed very differently uh, coming from a certain shade and whatnot. So it's, it's obviously, it's a lot has changed and being able to kind of go back and see those things. Um, yeah, man, it's really, it's really strange and almost kind of like eerie uh, leading up into the fight and, and a lot of the things that are said and, you know, um, but that being said, also, there's a little bit when they talk to Barrera's camp and they uh, go into Barrera's camp and there's a little bit of interviewing from Barrera's camp from around that time, too, and how absolutely dismissed he's being by pretty much HBO overall. And he's being dismissed by Hamed. He's being dismissed by just about everybody. And there's a massive uh, there's massive, like I said, massive British support in Las Vegas for Ahmed. Yeah, I mean that's that's important to get to. And I think I think if I'm not mistaken Brera had a rosary on, but he's just has a different attitude about the role he wants really Yeah, there's not much play. focus on it is the No, thing. there's not there's not focus on it. It's just it's it's just there and I don't need to talk about it. Um yeah, to get to your point, going into this fight, 30 sports writers were asked by HBO about who they picked in the fight. 28 of them picked the Prince. 28 out of 30 he was a three and a half to one betting favorite going into the fight. Uh, one interesting little anecdote, just because we the time moves in funny ways when we look back on it, 20 odd years um, back, I mean, even a couple of years back, I think it can compress or expand just depending on your mood. But Lennox Lewis is there talking and it's brought up that he, what are you doing at this fight? Because you're about to fly nine time zones away for a fight in South Africa against Hasim Rahman. 
And I know some people who bet on that fight where that was the first thing, the reason why they bet on it is they're like, this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. He's talking about going there because Mandela has asked him to go because Mandela was a boxing nut. And he's not understanding what this time zone and altitude is going to do to him going to Johannesburg. And this could be a major factor that he's going to be really exhausted. And he was. And and on top of that, the, one of the reasons why he was in that time zone at the fight was because he was in L.A. at the set of fucking Ocean's Eleven. And even when he was not filming, he was hanging out at the set. And the only reason why I know that, well, there were rumors, but the reason why I know they're true is because I know somebody who was a Warner Brothers person at that time and saw him on set. And they were like, he was fat and he was on set just chilling. And so yeah. they knew. I mean, there was there were rumors going around, too. But like, yeah, it is really interesting to, you know, see Lennox Lewis at that time. So because he was staging like a, a, a phony heavyweight championship against Vladimir Klitschko in, in Ocean's Eleven. So he was even trying to use intimidation tactics against Klitschko at the time. So just an interesting little factoid is he is specifically being warned about something that was instrumental in his shocking upset loss to Raman. Um, and then the other, the other story that I, I wasn't aware of at the time when I watched this fight was that eight weeks he he lost 35 pounds after recovering from a broken hand where he was out of the gym for seven months going into this fight now yeah. i'm not trying to bring this up as an excuse for what we saw i'm just saying it is a very important factor in assessing the version you this was not the best version of Hamed. now you could say Nobody forced him to get in there. He's trying to make a bunch of money. Maybe he didn't take Rare seriously or whatever. But this was a far cry from the guy who fought Kelly, the kind of condition he was in for that fight some years earlier, I think four years earlier. Um, the weight loss is tremendous. Anybody who has seen the Prince now, I, for a guy who's five foot three, I would guess conservatively he's 280 pounds. <laughs> you know, he's, he's a big gigantic. Guy. He's a big he guy. Is, he is a globe of a guy. And I'm not trying to fat shame. I'm just saying he is enormous for a guy who is fighting at 126 pounds. He is at least yeah. twice the size, at least conservatively. So this is a guy clearly who must have does not have the greatest genetics, presumably, for being like an ectomorph. So he must have been working his ass off to be as lean as he was. But that injury seemed to really change his trajectory. And this is important because... I mean, I mean, maybe this sounds ridiculous, but like I remember Russell Crowe made the point when he played the role in The Insider, uh, Jeffrey Wygant, he gained like 40 pounds for that. And he said his metabolism was never the same. He was in a battle with his weight for the rest of his life after that, even though he got into shape for Gladiator after it, but he killed himself to get into shape for it. And I wonder if something similar happened to The Prince is gaining a bunch of weight, maybe for the first time in his adult life, something might have shifted in his system a little bit, perhaps. I think the same is true with Ali as well. When Ali gained a bunch of weight after the three and a half year layoff, it seemed like there was an issue with weight for the rest of his career a little bit. 
and um, you know, it's it's also there are a couple of things that we didn't necessarily miss, but I mean, there was a lot going on in Hamed's career in the handful of years leading up to the Hamed or the Barrera fight. For instance, he had gone through a number of trainers. He was no longer with Brendan Ingle. So right. he'd, come, he'd come up with Brendan Ingle, but then there was a split. Um, and that was big news in British boxing during that time. Like, oh, Hamed and Ingle split, you know. And I think that it was big news because it was considered a, an iconic pairing. Uh, Hamed fought in that iconic Ingle Jim style. He had come up through the amateurs and been brought up by Ingle and kind of watched over. And I think it's one of those things that happens in boxing where when a fighter leaves a longtime trainer and especially a trainer that kind of raised them or brought them up through the ranks, it's considered, you know, it's, it's a, it's a blasphemy. It's a fucking, it's just a turncoat stab in the back, fucking yeah. real Benedict Arnold shit. Um, and so, <laughs> which is kind of fucked up because go read the story of Benedict Arnold. He was an all right guy, but anyway, <laughs> but in any case, you know, is uh, it, it's, it's considered a, a big sin, a mortal sin to do that. And that was big news in British boxing, but uh, going through a handful of trainers, somewhat similarly to kind of how Oscar De La Hoya did around this time, um, Nassim Hamed settled on Oscar Suarez, who uh, was a dude who trained a whole number of fighters, probably most notably used with Asselino Freitas for a long time. Um, and he passed away a number of years ago from pancreatic cancer, rest his soul. But he wound up with Oscar Suarez and Manny Stewart. And it's kind of like when you have, uh, you know, it very rarely does it work where you have a team of trainers where it's like A-list trainers all together. That's, it's really rare. That does not fucking happen very often. Usually there's some, a lot of headbutting and a lot of clashing. And that's exactly what was happening in his corner. There was a lot of push and pull as far as how they thought Hamed should fight, who they thought he should fight. Manny Stewart himself was used to being a trainer and a manager. You know, that was kind of his role throughout his, his life, basically, not just as a trainer, but also somebody who managed the careers of his fighters. Oscar Suarez was also, uh, you know, an opinionated trainer himself. So there was a lot of pushing and pulling going on in the corner. And on top of that, Hamed's family was very involved in his career as well. You know, his brothers uh, trailed along with him as part of kind of his posse and his dad was involved in his career. So yeah. there were a lot of voices. Again, not an excuse. Simply noting that there were a lot of things going on uh, in the Hamed corner in camp leading up to this fight. A lot of chaos. Very, very just busy. And also I kind of referenced it earlier that second documentary about this fight, it's like, you know, they're following, following Hamed and, you know, he has this like palatial suite and shit like that. And it's like, you know, tiger rugs and all sorts of shit. It, he's living like in the lap of luxury, just as any sort of superstar celebrity, uh, whether you're a fighter, golfer, basketball player, whatever would be. And the thing is, of course, in boxing, as we know, that doesn't work quite as well. And so a lot of these things really, I think, contributed to him blowing up in weight to kind of probably losing focus and motivation. Uh, and then on top of that, breaking his hand when you're a puncher. And that's the kind of thing that happens to punchers quite regularly, that paradox where you're a puncher and you're always breaking your fucking hands. Um, you know, these things all contributed for sure. And then you add on top of that, that Marco Antonio Pereira was a really good fighter. It was a, it was, you know, a perfect storm really. 
Yeah, and I think there's overlap there with the bad hands and, and Floyd. Floyd, that's a big part of his narrative and, and a legitimate part of his narrative when people say, oh, he couldn't punch or anything like that. He absolutely could punch, but he had really bad, brittle hands. And, and once those hands had had a number of operations, he, he adjusted his style um, very effectively. Whereas Hamed made comments, I, I saw some interviews with him I think from maybe five years ago, where he's talking about his career, he was always kind of evasive about his retirement. He didn't really formally announce his retirement for years, maybe a decade after he'd stepped away from his last fight. But hands were something that troubled him throughout his career. And he made a point that just my hands couldn't handle my punching power. And it, it it's interesting. It's an interesting facet that I don't think is attributed to him in the same way that it is for Mayweather. And Mayweather was never a big puncher. It's just he was a decent puncher. He was knocking many, many guys out early on, sort of in the in the pretty boy Floyd phase. It is interesting in this fight, too, that both of these guys are coming together at the same age. They're both 27. Um, big, re big reach disparity. I mean, Hamed, one of the things I find amazing about him um, as somebody who did a little amateur boxing with a shitty reach myself is he, he has, he gives up seven inches in reach, but he has no problem landing straight, straight punches and crosses at all throughout his career, even uppercuts like coming for the way he closes distance for somebody with really short arms is mesmerizing. And this is something I think if you've tried to do it and you, you yourself have bad shitty reach you appreciate what a deficit it is for people. Like, look at so many of the great boxers. Um, they have extraordinarily disproportionately long reach relative to, like, really slim waist kind of thing. It's a very common feature with great fighters. It's something that I would look for. It's sort of like in chess. You can tell a great chess player if they're a little kid and they attack in combination, you know they have something special. Anatomically, a really wide reach relative to your height is something where I'd be like, are you interested in boxing? Because it's just <laughs> such an advantage. So, I mean, the records we have here, the Prince is 35-0 and 0 with 31 knockouts. Crazy. I mean, you, you referenced Julian Jackson. I kind of see him as something similar for a little guy. He just can knock people out without really using his body i don't know how that body is generating the kind of power that he is but people react to it different than anybody i've seen at that weight class like the kind of punches he's landing these sort of swirling windmill sort of punches uppercuts uh it's it's really unusual and and amazing to watch Barrera's 52 and 3 with 38 knockouts um Another thing I'd say, if you're kind of questioning my take about Hamed's punching power, if you watch these documentaries and watch him hitting the bag, I've never heard a little guy hit like him. I've never heard a bag make the sounds that it's making while a 126-pound man is hitting that, hitting that bag. And I've heard Rigandiao, who is a fucking sledgehammer of a straight left hand. He is a big, big puncher. It's nothing like Hamed. I, I, I mean... I've never seen a little guy hit a bag with the kind of sounds that he's producing. So going in, it's it's a really interesting fight on paper. But but as we mentioned, Hamed is by far the favorite in this fight by the experts. Um, and, he, and he has big hometown support or, or home country support, as always happens with the UK. They love to support their guys and uh, just the intensity of the crowd in this fight going in. It's a lot like Kevin Kelly. It's 
it's really, really exciting. So why don't we get into the fight? I mean, how did, yeah. how did you see round one? You know, it, it's funny because Barrera establishes pretty quickly. Um, they talk about, you know, Barrera is a brawler. He's kind of a boxer puncher with definitely more f- emphasis on the puncher because he's aggressive and he said he's going to come in and he's going to knock Ahmed out and he's going to do this and he's going to be pushing him back. And of course, the first thing that happens is you get a really great glimpse of, you know, something that I, I'm not saying I invented this, like this notion. It's something that I I just believe, I guess, and have probably heard repeated is that, you know, when you have a fighter who's really wild or unorthodox or somebody who doesn't do things by the book, often the counter to that is doing things very orthodox and by the book and vice versa. You know, that's that foil is very important in trying to figure that out. And that's kind of what I was talking about with the technique thing earlier. And you, I think, is, you know, somebody who's who has been in the ring, but also been training people, uh, you know, can probably appreciate that a little bit, too, where you're taught to throw punches a certain way, you know, that kind of textbook or orthodox way, you know, because generally speaking, teaching somebody from that base is easier. It's easier to establish the base and then go from there. Whereas Hamed fought in a very improvisational style where not much is textbook at all. And so you don't really know where to go with that. And I think as a trainer, that would probably have been difficult to latch onto and get him to work to his strengths in that regard. But, you know, they they found a way. And that being said, again, back to the first round, you get to see that style and technical kind of contrast very early on where, first of all, Barrera is not attacking. He's not aggressive, not the way that he said he is. And you get to see something break out that is very akin to what I, what I would describe as like fencing. Very similar to fencing, um, working the lead hand angles uh, from, you know, between Southpaw and Orthodox, where Barrera is not only figuring out kind of how to tame the movement of Hamed, but he's also just kind of like dancing all over the place and has already figured the angle with his jab out like immediately. And so that's what you're starting to see is Hamed get tagged in the first round. Like, and the thing is we see Hamed get tagged in all sorts of his fights. So that's not really surprising because you think, all right, well, any moment he's going to spring forth, but you could already see that Barrera has got the discipline down in the first round. So I think that's a very clear Barrera Barrera round where he establishes that, no, he's not going to get sucked into anything. And actually he's come to kind of teach a lesson. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think Hamed is coming in here. He's clearly weight drained. The seven months outside of a gym, I don't think he probably had that since he started boxing at seven years old. Um, Your body's going to change a little bit. And and I think as as we're mentioning, in the lead up to this fight, he's requesting not just palatial suites, but he wants like billion dollar like billionaire sweets. Like he he's going out of his way saying like, don't you recognize who I am and what I'm meant to be sort of thing. So there's a lot of ego. Um, he's making requests of Michael Buffer and HBO about uh, really framing this victory in a religious context. So he is creating this sort of messianic view of himself that, that he is delivering on Allah, like, like in, in what his victories represent. Um, so again, like you were talking about megalomania, it seems a component to what he's doing, and maybe he's a little more reliant on it because he hasn't been as reliant on his training. He hasn't really 
been in a position where he's not in optimal condition for a fight. I'd never heard of him prior about his discipline being an issue or his conditioning in any of his fights. This is a fight where he's going to throw about half the amount of punches that he's thrown regularly in all of his other fights. That's important. You can give credit to Barrera for that with, with his discipline and, and orthodox um, approach to boxing, more traditional approach to boxing. Um, I do give Barrera credit for being in probably the best condition of his career. That's one of the things the documentary pointed out. He worked his ass off for this fight. Uh, I also think his confidence is he's going in it for every second of every round to win, not to survive. He's not afraid of, of Hamed. He's not afraid of the risk. Um, he is really pissed off in a good way. It doesn't throw him off his game. It motivates him his annoyance toward Hamed, which which I, when I watched it the first time, I was 100% in Barrera's camp. I was like, good, expose him. Fuck this guy. Sort of the way I felt about every opponent that Roy Jones fought. I was so annoyed by his hubris that I was always cheering for the other guy and thinking, I'll never feel sorry for Roy Jones when somebody finally catches up with him. And then, of course, as soon as somebody did with Tarver, I felt so sorry. Yeah, you feel so sad. For I him. felt terrible. I just, I was like, oh, no, like, I don't want this to happen to Roy. What, how can they do it? And then it happened again and again. Oh, it was horrible. So with Barrera, um, in the first minute, he lands a big left hook, a big left hook against Hamed. And, and just the prince just looks frustrated. And he looks frustrated, not just in the moment, but he can see how this round could encapsulate the tenor of the entire fight. That's an interesting moment because we really hadn't seen that before. When Kelly is knocking him down four years earlier, Hamed doesn't give a flying fuck. He is that gambler who's just going to double down and double down and double down. And eventually he's going to win it. And he does. Here it looks different. Barrera is not somebody that he's seen before. And so... I mean, it's not, it, it, I think this fight is important to think of in the context of uh, Hamed looked back on this fight, maybe 20 years later, 15 years later and said, really the reason I lost is because Barrera was lucky at the time he found me. It was, it was a prime opportunity for him to beat me because of the context of me not being in the gym and everything. I would counter to be lucky. You have to be close and in every sense of being close to that opportunity to capitalize on it, Barrera was. He was in condition. He did everything he could to win every second of every round. And he showed a mental toughness that I think wore on Hamed mentally in this fight. And yeah. that was not a good place to be for Hamed, who was not physically in condition. Um, but there's still some great exchanges near the end of the first round. I thought Barrera's subtle movement and tactics throughout this round and throughout the fight um he deserves a lot more credit than i think he's got for this it's not just exposing that hamed was worse than we thought it's that his game plan and the way he executed it were exemplary and what i love is if you watch this fight by watching their feet barrera is making adjustments and strategizing with where he's trying to dictate the geography of the fight in a way that no opponent ever had against Hamed. He is making little adjustments all the time to be out of danger and to put himself in a position to land, not home runs, but to hit singles throughout this fight, with, with especially with his jab. And that's what you spoke to earlier is that like 
if you don't have the athletic ability to beat somebody else, or maybe anatomically, you don't have the reach, timing and technique is what overcomes it and conditioning. And Barrera offers all three of those with enthusiasm. Right. And I mean, uh, Hamed might have a point as far as the timing that Barrera caught him or whatever, but at the same time, you kind of lose the benefit of being able to say that if you don't come back. If yep. you don't like, you know, bounce back to where you were or at least close, you know, you don't really have the, you don't really, you can't really say that, you know, you, or at least you can't say that with a straight face. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I saw was Barrera using angles, using just better, uh, better schooling, better orthodox or, you know, well-schooled tactics to break down uh, somebody who is difficult to tame and somebody who you have to be careful with. Um, and pretty much I saw the same kind of thing continue into round two. The thing is, you did say there were, there were I think it was two really good exchanges in round one where uh, the commentators are kind of like, okay, you know, here comes the prince type of shit, where it does kind of look like, all right, he's starting to open up. He's getting a little more comfortable. He's doing his little, you know, movements and trying to get Barrera to buy into him. But Barrera isn't. And into the second round, he's still not. You know, he's he's not buying into the tricks he's not going to start biting on the feints and shit like that and and instead Brera is taking the initiative to uh if even if he is countering um he's doing a little bit better on the counter but he's taking the initiative with his jab which is making a big difference in the fight i think the jab the jab and, and again the little sidestepping the little reversion of finding a slightly new angle to create new things and to get out of what Hamed wants to do in response is a big deal. And also forcing Hamed to lead the dance a little bit proved in this, in this one fight, I don't think it would be true in other fights because I think Hamed was way more of, able to be offensive as well as defensive as a counterpuncher. He preferred to be a counterpuncher, electrifying as a counterpuncher. I've never seen people close the gap the way he can. It, as I say, with such short reach, the way he's almost like in your chest from like four or five yards away is amazing how quickly he closes that that gap. Um, but Barrera is making just little adjustments that exploit some of the hesitation that Hamed has here, um, where you see Hamed just clearly more cautious. He's nervous. He's getting clipped with jabs that are keeping him off balance. It's a very effective way to handle aggression. And uh, Brera is very willing to throw in combination. He's willing to risk getting hit back. Um, I don't think Barrera was really ever hurt in this fight by Hamed's punching power. So that's a really novel thing, given Hamed looks people makes people look clownish with how powerful he is with both fists. Um, and I think Hamed is just less willing to be creative and, and improvise in this fight because he doesn't have the conditioning to do it. Yeah. And from a technical standpoint, another thing Barrera is doing is uh, like you you touched on the kind of timing, being able to beat speed and stuff like that. Obviously, we know there aren't any hard formulas when it comes to boxing, but but that is one of those things that tends to work. You know, uh, speed can beat power, but timing can beat speed type of thing. and basically what Brera was doing was timing Hamed's rushes in. And since Hamed was being so flat footed, number one, and number two, having to be the aggressor and move in himself, he wasn't able to move in and then move out. Cause he had to kind of set 
himself to to punch at least for a moment and what Barrera was doing was timing that just fucking spot on and and just about every time Hamed would jump in with a big shot or try to Barrera would time him with either a right and a hook or a hook and a right just that kind of like two three or three two combination that was catching him and also on top of that catching him flat-footed and like with his legs crossed so it was like you know he was catching him and like you know freezing up and getting looking all weird and so that's another thing that the commentators kind of touch on is that when Hamed gets caught, he's getting caught so big and so obvious and his body's so like contorted that it's, it's like exaggerated. And it also looks exaggerated to the judges too. Yeah. And I think, I think the other thing that Barrera did that we, we haven't pointed out is Hamed's counter left hand is been so devastating throughout his career. And it's not that, he was unable to sort of land it. It's that Barrera's tactic was specifically to take it away from him. And unfortunately, Hamed never solved that issue. He was never able to sort of regain it and to put himself in a position to land it. Again, I think it comes down to conditioning and maybe it comes down to the the hand injury. But Barrera, just his ability to outbox Hamed and, and Hamed not being able to find a solution to that with with his great powers of improvisation is a key factor in the fight. And I think you could think at the beginning, um, oh, Hamed is going to solve this. He's going to adjust, but he he never was able to. And Barrera's ability to circle away and land counter punches, like not just get away, but get away and land, that's where you have to give Barrera full credit for what he was doing and, and his strategy throughout the fight. He was implementing a game plan that nobody had ever done against Hamed and and he seized and capitalized on this opportunity of of dealing with a Hamed who was maybe 70% of who he was against Kelly so good 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 for him on that but I mean in the second round I just had Naz is just being controlled and he's never been controlled as a fighter I mean I think he only had five losses as an amateur um, but you can see that his strategy is being molded by Barrera. Barrera is beginning, it's like playing chess at a high level is one player playing for both people. And that's what Barrera is doing by the second round. You can see that the caution, everything that Nazim is doing is being dictated by Barrera. It's part of his game plan and he's being molded into submission. His output is becoming anemic in a way that it never had prior. So I... By, by a wide margin, have Barrera up to, to nothing in terms of rounds. And Barrera's landed almost twice as many punches at this point and throwing uh, 13 more punches. So, uh, I, I mean, I had this fight the first time I watched it much closer than I did in, in re-watching it. I struggled to give uh, the Prince almost any rounds in this fight. I, and I think that a big, uh, I think the evidence for what you're talking about there is the fact that um and Barrera's control and what he's doing is the fact that in round three he stops jabbing quite as much and Hamed is finally able to kind of break through and and you know come close to winning a round and it might be one of the rounds if you're looking to give him a round probably that would be one of the, the first round to do it because Hamed is finally able to break through a bit. And a big reason is because Barrera fights him just maybe a little bit more than he should, doesn't jab as much as he should. And Hamed kind of gets him where he wants him a few times. 
but you're also able to see, um, you know, Barrera, he gets a reaction from Barrera for landing punches, but you're able to see also that Barrera's taking them. They're landing, but he's taking them okay. You know, he's not getting hurt, not kind of, uh, not quite what you would expect, but it's when a, the HBO folks finally start going, okay, you know, here we go. The Nassim Ahmed show is starting to come on, whatever. And that's not quite the case, but it looks for a moment like it might be. Yeah, I mean, this is another fight. It's funny because when I was a kid watching this stuff, I had a lot more respect for the announcers than I do now looking back on it. Like, I love George Foreman, but he is more often than not so incredibly asinine at his evaluations of what the fighters are doing. Where he's it's like he's, comic he, relief. Yeah, and it, it's just bizarre because it's it's almost like he's he's so consistently wrongheaded in appraising what they're doing it's just he says it with such authority you're like i know i oh, know wait a minute it, it, i'm not like the biggest larry merchant fan but merchant would just say something and he'd go oh no 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 and it'd be like what are you talking about yeah, he's totally correct yeah it's true and they're combative in a way that's weird to look back on too like they're kind of nasty to one another a lot more frequently than i remember and it doesn't seem particularly good-natured at times but anyway like by the third round end of the third round Foreman is criticizing Marco Antonio Barrera for his style in this fight. And you're like, well, he's dominating this fight in a way that nobody has ever done to Hamed. What the fuck are you watching? Like, what would you, uh, I mean, the technique and conditioning of Barrera and the strategy is overcoming a clear gap in talent between the two fighters. Right, like like Barrera could never fight the way Hamed was fighting. Take nothing away from Barrera, but like nobody's saying that Barrera is have the potential to be an all-time great. I mean, uh, Manny Stewart in the lead up to this fight, when he was asked, "Where do you see Hamed in his career?" said, "I think he's going to be the greatest featherweight in history." Um, against Kevin Kelly, all of the comparisons are to. Hall of Fame, epic Hall of Fame fighters in terms of what Hamed is doing as like a 23-year-old in, in that fight against Kelly. So that's not the way we talk about Barrera, which Barrera is a Hall of Fame fighter. I'm not trying to take anything away from him, but I'm just saying the perception of the two guys was quite different. So I, I just don't understand where Foreman was coming from. Um, Barrera is effectively countering all the time. Naz is becoming ever more reluctant to lead the dance. And there is a great Marco wide right left hook that's a lot like Lennox Lewis knocking out Ramen. That combination that he knocks him out in the second fight, that is something that Marco is doing. And I think that punch selection is really important because as Hamed is trying to get out of the way and wheel away, you are turning your fighter and they're coming into your other punch. So it's not, it's not just a, an arbitrary punch. It's very specific to who's in front of him. And he has the reach in a way that Hamed has not made an adjustment or is incapable of making an adjustment to get out of the way of that punch. Um, so it, it, it becomes something that you can see him throwing a lot more often in a way that Lewis loved to use it because he had so much more reach over most of his opponents. So that, that's what I noticed. And I mean, I, I have a 3 nothing <laughs> Barrera after three. It's funny too because the left hook is is 
you know, classically not considered a good weapon against a southpaw. But right. in practice, I think that it's been shown that it's actually a really good weapon against a southpaw if you know how to use it. If you're just throwing it as you're, you know, straight up, like it's not going to land very well. You know, you have to create the angle, but if you create the angle, it's it's there all day. And that's yeah. and that's part of what Barrera kind of demonstrated or started demonstrating as they, you know, got closer into exchanges and whatnot. And like I said, yeah, that kind of two, three or three, two that Barrera was landing, or I mean, wasn't really so much a straight right, but regardless, point being, yeah, he was opening up with that sort of combination as they were getting close. So, I mean, it, it wound up getting into the fourth round here, dude, and it's starting to become a crucial point, at least in my opinion, if I, you know, were a more unbiased commentator, I'd, I'd be starting to say, all right, you know, Nassim Ahmed's going to have to start banking rounds here if he wants to get into this fight because he's either two, uh, you know, he's either one round down two one or three rounds down three zip. I can't, you, you, there's not much argument for him winning either of those first rounds. And I think you have to be somewhat generous to give him the third. So in any case, you know, he'd probably two, three rounds down at this point. And going into the fourth round, Marco Antonio Barrera is not really showing much let up in terms of discipline. And the moments where he's not doing well, it's only because he's not doing something. Hamed is not really seizing much initiative in the fight. He's doing a lot of lashing out and a lot of kind of like, you know, single shots from far away. But it's the kind of thing where like, you know, he stops and then admires it because he thinks that's the kind of shit that should have knocked him out. Mm. And he either doesn't land because Barrera knows better or if it does land, it's not doing anything. Totally agree. I mean, fourth round, I, I have Brera landing big, big shots early. A left seems to stun the Prince. And just the way that Marco is able to close the distance with his timing is something that Hamad is just having increasing difficulty dealing with. Um, so, I mean, it's it just is becoming really clear that just Brera... Barrera has control of this fight. He's not afraid to keep keep going with what he's doing. And and Hamed just does not have an answer for it. He, I mean, I can see at this point maybe three rounds to one, but I wouldn't have any problem if you said it was all Barrera throughout this fight. And going into the fifth round, um, the prince's the prince's left hand has been basically useless throughout this fight. And the feints of Marcos and his foot movement is just setting him up beautifully. Like this, this is not about the Prince really failing here. I mean, I think he's not able to implement what he was used to. And one of the problems in boxing, why we need a trainer in this sport, um, is you're the, often the last person to know when you've lost a step. But your opponent can see it. And, and while you're trying to figure out if you have... And you're being confronted by your ego um, in a way that your opponent is going to keep you honest, I, that I think is different than in other sports. So if, if you're used to, in milliseconds, getting away from things or landing things or how quickly you can find a new angle and you suddenly have a seven-month layoff from the gym and you're recovering and stuff like that, you could be a second slower, but in your mind, you're not. You can see things that you're not able to implement. And you're just seeing that in this fight. And Barrera is just right place, right time, right guy to drive that home. So, I I mean, I can see four to one at this point, but I also wouldn't have a problem if you had five nothing um, or, yeah, five nothing going into the sixth. 
yeah, I, I agree. I think that the rounds three and five are probably the, the only rounds in that first half of the fight that really Ahmed has an argument, and it's really not the greatest of arguments either. Um, in his corner, they're obviously feeling some sense of urgency because Manny Stewart's not an idiot. Manny Stewart knows what time it is, you know, and he's also able, he's called several Barrera fights to this point. He's seen Barrera fight. He knows what he fights like. He knows that he's a well-schooled fighter and he knows that Barrera is, you know, for the most part, taking Hamed to school, ask him a couple times what's going on, tells him he needs to get more busy, needs to use his jab. And, you know, Hamed's not really that kind of fighter. And I think that also speaks to the kind of discord in Hamed's corner, where that's not to say that Manny Stewart, again, I told, I just said he knows what he's talking about and he, and he knows what he's seeing, but there's not a whole lot of unity in his corner. There's not a whole lot of, you know, this is what needs to happen and this is how to attack this fighter. Um, and, that chaos in his corner spills over in between rounds into the fight where he's getting different instructions too. So he's not really getting much help either throughout the first half of this fight where Barrera's for the most part, just, you know, undressing him. He's, he's given him the old howdy do. Yeah. And there's, there's a key moment. I think it's in the fifth or the sixth round where they're in a clinch and there is a back and forth of blows that they strike on each other and it's one of those key moments because where you just see like who who's the real dog in the fight. And <laughs> yeah, who's really the bully? Yeah. Who's really the bully? And Hamed takes the first shot, but he takes a shot right after. And you can see this recognition of these mind games that have always been so effective with everybody else. Huh. This is not only not working, but it's actually playing into him having more energy than he'd otherwise have. He's enjoying humiliating me. He's enjoying exposing me. And I don't really know what to do. I don't, I don't know how to counteract this. And I don't know that I fully subscribe to my North Star as much as I did before either. And it's an interesting moment because it, it is a clear, like kind of pivotal wake-up moment in the fight. It's it's a great, great moment. Um yeah. going into the seventh, one of the things I find interesting. So we're half half the fight none. Letterman has the fight even. As, as they announce his scorecard, and, and generally I'm not far off Letterman most of the time, but it's a fight where Barrera has thrown 60 more punches, he's landed 20, 25 more at a higher percentage, round after round after round. I'm not sure what fight he's watching in this. Like I think there must have been a lot more bias going into it to affect the judging, which perhaps affected the way I viewed it at the time too, because... I did see it a lot closer the first time I watched it than, than rewatching it. And it, it's a, it's a weird feeling. <laughs> yeah. I uh, like we, like we, we were saying with George Foreman, you know, he's still totally bought into this idea that any moment, you know, Hamed's going to do something or other, and you can't be in there with him and doing this or that. Cause it's something, something's going to happen. And he did, he did the exact same shit during Hopkins Trinidad too, up until like the 10th fucking round, you know, Foreman's like any moment now. And, and people are like, dude, <laughs> Trinidad's getting the shit kicked out of him. Stop. And, you know, the same kind of thing here where Larry Merchant's having to chime in and be the voice of reason. And it's, and at this point finally just says, you know, maybe that's because Barrera's a really good fighter, George, you know, it's like right. fucking snaps at him and, and, you know, nobody's buying it or whatever. Yeah. It's not an even kind of fight whatsoever. Um, close. 
Not even close. You know, like I said, if you're being generous and you want to give Ahmed like the third and fifth or something like that, like I said, I think you'd have to be really generous to do that. But even so, that's like the extreme edge of the spectrum and that's the best he can do. Um, but either way, you know, his face is starting to get, Hamed's face is starting to get marked up a little bit. And that exchange that you were talking about there is, is perfect because that also same kind of thing happened in uh, Hopkins Trinidad where uh, Trinidad hits him on the break. And it's like he hits him with a really hard hook on the break and Hopkins just goes and just stands there because no. it's almost like Trinidad's like, wait, oh, that didn't hurt. Oh, shit. Fuck. Because that was a hard bunch. So if that Those didn't hurt you, I'm fucked. And, and I love I love those moments in fights too, because it's such an interesting moment. I, I, you're reminding me of Lennox Lewis, Shannon Briggs, where Briggs lands a big shot, like near the end of the fight, cleanly on Lewis. And Lewis just kind of drops his hands and looks at him. And you can see the soul of Briggs leave his body. And then all of a sudden there's like a right, left, right that drops him. And you're just kind of like, okay, the combination was amazing, but taking a clean shot from Shannon Briggs, not an advisable thing. And it just robbed him of his soul of like, when I hit somebody clean, they fall and he is smiling at me and then knocked me out. It was just like, just fucking dunking on Patrick Ewing kind of moment for, for that. And yeah, I don't think Naz really recovered from that. Like, Ooh, I'm in a real fight with a guy who is really enjoying this. Nobody enjoys fighting me. What's he doing? Yeah, it's it really made for uh, an uphill battle. Well, maybe not on Harold Letterman's card, but it made for an uphill <laughs> battle in practice inside the ring going into the second half. And you know, it and it was not uh, a kind second half either for Hamed. It got marginally better, I think, because Barrera did start to slow down. His jab wasn't working quite as consistently as you know. That's what happens when the fight wears on. But Hamed also wasn't really putting himself in the position to, to uh, take advantage of it. Like, you know, not really anyway. Uh, it was just that he was able to catch uh, Barrera a little bit more because of he was slowing down. But even so, Barrera technically was doing, you know, most of the right things. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the seventh round, I have noted that Hamed is definitely stepping up the tempo of the fight. He's trying to reclaim it. And it's the first time I'm seeing it where it's sort of like, oh, like now it's not just one person dictating what's happening. Now there is an argument and it's not clear who's going to win this argument in the round in terms of what they're trying to get, get across. Uh, by the eighth round, the other problem with Naz, I thought is with being encouraged by the seventh round, like not just sort of gaining permission to take over the fight a little bit. And I just mean, just incrementally take over. Um, he's, kind of gained permission but he's not able to find encouragement to put his foot on the, the gas and you're seeing that manifest in him being totally unwilling to throw in combination and that's one of the brilliant things about all of the fights prior is he's throwing knock like often he's knocking people out with four different punches like as the people are falling he's knocked them out once he's able to clip them another time or, or two other times here it's really sort of pot shotting, and you're just not going to pot shot your way to victory against Barrera, the way he's fighting and the way he's moving, both to set up shots and to get away from shots. So, I mean, at the end of the eighth round, um, I mean, I still have it seven to one, just because Barrera's movement and his jab are still doing enough for me to win to win rounds. Um, going into the ninth, 
I just felt like Barrera's counters are, are a step above what the Prince's offense is able to do. Um, so it's a, it's a close round and I might've given the ninth round to the Prince, but I feel like I'm trying to be charitable just because I like him so much. I even rewatching and I know the outcome I'm cheering for him and I'm still really struggling to give him rounds where I know I'm biased in his favor, even though I really like Barrera. I love what Barrera is able to do. But this second go round revisiting the fight, I'm cheering for the Prince because it's almost like I want him to have a career where I'm going to see him fight a lot more, even though I know he's about to disappear after this, which is, I mean, another like kind of the last chapter of what we're going to talk about in this fight is he was only 27. And at the end of this fight, he's talking about what he's going to do when he comes back. A great champion comes back and has a rematch. He just disappears in a really weird odd enigmatic unusual sort of way so i mean where were you in terms of getting to the 10th round like i think i have it i mean the 10th is the best offense i have of the whole fight for the prince lands a bomb in this round uh finally and is keeping on the pressure but to totally to barrera's credit he is responding at every opportunity he's never allowing himself to be dictated to and um keeps keeps firing back not not willing to submit it's kind of like here's Barrera at the beginning of the fight right they all they both start out here and Barrera starts to pull ahead and Hamed's kind of following him following him following him and then as the kind of seven eight nine ten he starts kind of coming closer but then Barrera's batting him back you know yeah. <laughs> like he's it's not gonna he's not letting him so there are kind of moments in there like I thought uh so rounds three five and potentially 10 were the rounds where I thought you could say, all right, well, Hamed could have taken those rounds. And there was another one, I think it was either seven or eight that I thought was real close, or I'd have to look at it again. But in any case, there was another one that I thought was pretty close. And that was again, largely because Barrera wasn't doing quite enough offensively or wasn't doing as much as he was doing earlier, as far as taking initiative, he was yep. letting Hamed come forward a little bit more and trying to counter a little bit too much. Uh, and Hamed was still fast enough that that was that's not easy, you know, countering somebody fast, even using timing is not easy. So, no. uh, you know, Barrera was here and there kind of having a few issues with that. But so after 10 rounds, I thought that, you know, about the the farthest you could stretch, it would be seven, three Barrera, you know, and again, I think that's being kind of generous to Hamed, maybe giving him one or two rounds that he maybe didn't deserve. So yeah he's in a position where he he really needs these next two rounds or he needs to like really do something here. And that's just, it's not in the cards, bro. It's not in the cards and it's not just us saying it. I mean, I have it seven, three, and I agree with you. It's generous to, to Hamed to have it seven, three and Stewart in Hamed's corner says you have to go for the knockout. So it's abundantly clear that he is willing to talk to an undefeated fighter that way that you are down, you are down significantly. And the only way you're going to win this fight is if you take it away from the judges. That's what he's saying to him at that point. So I, I think that's pretty illustrative that things are getting desperate. So in the 11th round, I thought you'd think Hamed has all of the incentive to, you know, keep going what has happened throughout his career, this undefeated career, all of the religious context that he's dropped into it, that I'm just following the script that Allah has written for me. And I'm not making light of that. That's what he was saying going into this fight. Um, but instead, Barrera pours it on. 
in the 11th. And I love, I love seeing that. Like you're, you're clearly ahead and you're willing to take that risk. Fuck that shit. I'm not going to coast. I'm not going to get on my bike. All he just gets meaner. He gets meaner. And all of the exchanges are controlled by Barrera throughout the fight. And Merchant is now chiming in in a way that really annoys me. The Prince's style has been exposed. I do not believe in any way that the Prince's style has been exposed. I think he's not in condition to implement it on any level. He's not, he's not able, he doesn't have the same hand speed, doesn't have the same foot speed, he's not creating angles. It's and just he's very not, reductive, you know. It's, it's, and just dismissive of the context, which I think is absolutely important to be considering, especially at this point in the fight. Because um, it is, I think, about conditioning, and I think a game plan that Naz had going into this fight, where Stewart explicitly said he was not changing the game plan in any way for Naz, bad idea if you have a fighter who's not in the same condition to do what he'd been doing the whole time michael jordan when he couldn't dunk like michael jordan found a jump shot and developed that why because he recognized he couldn't play above the rim anymore and he became arguably a more dangerous player in many respects naz had to make that adjustment he was not willing to i think you can see the scaffolding that was sort of sustaining this arrogant hubris that he had that you know i can do it even if i didn't train this properly for this fight same thing happened to ali against joe frazier his wife was wearing black why because she knew how little training he'd done in that first fight she predicted a loss going into that fight not ali too much too much ego too much hubris so uh i i mean i just was the other feature of this round, the 11th, was that Naz lands a really good short punch that the announcers don't talk about. But it's fucking clean. It's a nasty punch that with half of the and he velocity, smiles after it, too. He, 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 he like grins after it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the kind of punch that if you go through his highlight reel with half the velocity, he's not guys out cold and it does nothing to Barrera. Absolutely no effect. And I, I just think it's just eating at the determination of Naz to go above and beyond what he can in the state that he's in. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, eighth round. I mean, I mean, I mean, I have an eight, three going into the 12th round. Brera is ahead and he still wants to close out the show with tremendous intensity. And, and I just had this feeling, I mean, the note I had was, this is a fight where Barrera is meant to be an opponent in Nassim's movie. This is meant to be an, an, like a biopic about Nassim, but instead it's the other way around. That's what's happening in this at, in this moment, where it's like, I feel like Nassim has become the opponent in the Barrera resume, yeah, and he dude, can this, feel it. Yeah, this is the Green Hornet getting shown up by his sidekick here. You know, this, this, yeah. is, not, this is bad. And and the eleventh round is is fairly illustrative and fairly you know uh, it, it it's definitely demonstrative as far as what Barrera is doing to Hamed and just turning him away at every turn and it's like he's just poking holes in his ego at this point he's not even defeating him in the ring but he's clearly doing more than that because it's like every time that Hamed it's like he just gains an inch. He's almost there. He's almost got him right where he needs him, but then bam, 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 you know, and it's like, fuck, he can't, every time he lands something, Brera lands something more. You know, he's 
Pereira is one of those fighters and has been throughout his career where he really has that dog in him, dude. You know, yeah. he's the kind of fighter, not every fighter's like this, where he gets punched, he wants to punch back. You know, he yeah. wants to hit you back. Not every fighter's like that, and he does. And we start to see that not only in the 11th round, but going into the 12th too, where something pretty important and pretty gnarly happens where, hey, man, if Brer would have lost this fight because of that, that would have sucked. But and he could have. And he but could've. he could have. I mean, it was an intentional, egregious foul that could have caused injury. Yeah, so, I mean, we're we're referencing a full Nelson that in the moment Barrera slaps into the on ring post, and yeah, and slams him into the turnbuckle and and gets a point deducted. But you're absolutely right. Um, it's a completely intentional foul that could have done a lot more harm than it ended up doing. But he gets a point deducted, so I mean, that ends up making my scorecard eight rounds for Barrera, three for Hamed, and one even. Um, Closing out the fight, Jim Lampley chimes in in a way that probably would not be advisable post 9-11. This loss must have been written by Allah, and uh, Allah knows how to spell Barrera, (laughs) and then spells it out, like, but but on the other hand... (laughs) It's not like Lampley injected this whole religious overtone. It is explicitly by Hamed. And this this is like it's funny how if you do it the one way, it's sort of like, oh, okay, he's celebrating. But if you then push back on it, you're you know um an atheist asshole. I I mean, I don't know. It sort of reminded me a bit of of Let There Be Blood, where or sorry, there will be blood. I remember watching that movie thinking a really interesting moment is when you have the oil man versus religion, when the religious guy forces the oil man to become religious, the audience laughed while I was there. Ha ha ha. He has to be baptized and accepted in order to win over the common people. But when the religious person is forced to admit that it's, it's all bullshit, the crowd was incredibly uncomfortable. It was an interesting moment. So there was something similar I felt sort of watching Lampley mock um, the religious overtones that had been imposed by Hamed in the fight, where I was like, oh, this feels gross. In a way, it didn't feel gross at the beginning for Hamed to just celebrate where he comes from um, in in terms of how he views the context of the fight. Um, Merchant clearly had a, a line in the pipeline for this this was supposed to be a moment of truth, and it turned into an hour of torture for Hamed. Okay. <laughs> All right. He's always got, yeah, he's always had some shit written up on a cue card beforehand. You know, good old merch. I mean, I I, I do appreciate his uh, insistence on speaking truth to power, but sometimes it was just the wrong truth. But, um, yeah, it another kind of the last chunk of that fight to after the foul, after a Brera loses a point, it's like, all right, you know, where are we going from here in this fight? And obviously there's not much fight left, but Hamed tries to turn it up and Barrera beats the shit out of him even worse. in like the last minute of the fight, like he like beats the shit out, like lands more in that last portion of the fight than he did right. in the last like three rounds, you know, it's, it's bad. And so it's like there goes any sort of semblance of hope that Hamed could corner him and knock him out and score a big round because it's already in, you know, he's got a point taken away. But then but then Barrera takes any sort of hope away and wins the round definitively by kicking his ass. So it's like, you know, a final real nail in the coffin. 
and um, you can, so they go two things, actually, it's funny. They go to the post-fight interviews also after they do this kind of, you know, uh, wrap-up or before they do the wrap-up, they go to the post-fight interviews. <laughs> One of the funniest things to me was, man, Ray Torres was just a, that guy was such a crazy ass when it came to translations. So Pereira starts out the interview speaking in English, which he has a heavy accent, but he speaks just fine. Yeah, he does. And, and Lampley asks him, so like what, you know, about his tactics, basically. And Barrera answers, yeah, you know, we worked really hard in the gym. And I already know that because he's a Manny Stewart fighter, he's going to be really aggressive. So we worked on taming that aggression. We worked on timing him on the way in. And so then fucking or, uh, whoever it is doing the interview turns to Ray Torres and goes like, <laughs> I'm like, he just spoke fucking English, bro. Right. And so Ray Torres translates and doesn't even say what he says. Right. Right. <laughs> like, bro, what are you doing? It's but in any case, it's it's funny because you know, uh Brera doesn't really he doesn't make light of it, he doesn't talk shit. Uh, he's not an asshole about it. He's fairly gracious about it. And he's pretty much just like, yeah, you know, we knew he we know he hits hard, and we were basically not trying to be in line for the punches. And it's, you know, fairly understated, which matches what's going on with Barrera, you know, as far as the personality and shit. And then, of course, they go to Hamed, and he's just the most casual, like, yeah, yeah, you know, just what happens. That's what my religion says should happen. And that's pretty much like like we have said before, he falls back on, uh, which kind of, you know, it really, it's a very interesting portion of what's going on here where... I don't know if it was religion. I don't know if it was his own, like, you know, megalomania, personality, the luxury. I don't know what it was, right? But after this fight, uh, maybe it was all of these things plus Barrera kind of breaking him mentally a little bit. But, um, you know, it cer certainly seems like he was able to create, like, the excuse or create the um, illusion or whatever that this was just what happens. It was written and it's regular thing and... You know, he's never really having to reckon with this as a fighter. And it's not surprising. I mean, if you go in, if you're somebody that goes in to see a tarot card reader, you're going to find what you're looking for. Like there, there are magicians that like, I, I'm really fascinated by magicians, magic as a thing. And a lot of those guys made their living by using sort of like the mentalism tricks with tarot cards or, or palm reading and that kind of thing. And one of the things that some of them have tried, I'm speaking from a documentary about James Randi. Um, oh yeah. Love that guy. Who died not long ago is one of his closest friends. That's how he paid his way through college. And he did an experiment where he tried to do the opposite of what you're supposed to do with palm reading and tarot card reading. And it made no difference because if you're already there, like every lie is an act. You're of already on the car lot. You, you're you're gonna believing is seeing it's not seeing is believing right like a lot of people when the bedrock of their understanding of something gets flipped up upside down they double down on what they believe and so you know it's i mean even we're talking about 9-11 and i don't mean this disrespectfully but i've never understood the argument that everybody who was killed is in heaven and everybody who was saved was saved by god that's a weird way to have it both ways. And yet it makes perfect sense for most people like because they don't want to do whatever's required emotionally to grapple with the implications of, of that evil or randomness or chaos or whatever it is. I, I need a clean explanation. I just leave it alone. 
And, and I think in a way less significant way, Hamed, no matter what was going to happen, he was going to say it was written. I mean, he was saying in the lead up to this, God would never allow me to lose sort of thing. But once he does, it's, oh, that was the plan. Okay, I got, you know, it works in mysterious ways and off we go. So it it's it's weird to see it because of the way that he built it up throughout his career. He literally has it on his trunks. It, I mean, it's saying... I, I think it, does it say Islam or does it say Allah on his trunks? Oh, I can't remember. I I don't know. I'd have to look, but but yeah. yeah in any case, he's clearly advertising it, and like you said, and, wearing it on his sleeve, literally. And, and and I mean, this is something with Roy Jones, who religion is an absolutely massive part of his identity and and life, and what gives meaning to his life. And and I asked him a question that was maybe a bit insubordinate, not insubordinate, but like. Uh, risking offense and i said like because he was saying that god was the one who was saying he needed to keep fighting at a time it seemed abundantly clear to everybody it was very dangerous for him to keep going and he said if god didn't want me to fight he would give me a brain injury that would be detected and i asked him if god had ever said no to him for anything that he himself personally wanted to do he thought about it for about a, a second and a half and went no and i said does that give you pause that God is just underwriting everything you already want to do, despite the fact that your whole family is begging you not to fight. You say, no, nah, 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 you know, he's telling me. Yeah, why is and, God behind your belief but not theirs? Yeah, right. That's right. And I, this is interesting because doing a profile not long after on, on Andre Ward, I put to, because that Jones was his big hero, I put to him the same question. This is a fighter who son of God is his nickname. And, and God is a huge part of, of his life more so than anybody I've ever, any athlete I've ever met. And he said, God has told me, no, God has told me no about some of the things that I personally wanted to do. And I've listened. That was the difference between him and Jones in, in this one narrow, narrow kind of way. But I thought an important distinction between the two of them. Um, so I thought, yeah, the end of this for Hamad, I, I did wonder and I'm I'm reaching and I'm speculating how much this undermined what he believed he was fighting for uh, by being confronted, because I do think it's important. Great winners, unlike I think is the common narrative, do not have to demonstrate any amount of self-awareness. Losers, it is thrust upon them. They have to see who they are in a way that winners don't which is why so many winners are so sociopathic and, and, and never reflective. Um, losers, you don't have a choice. And, and it's why oh, across the board, losers are way more interesting to interview than winners. That we we're talking before about uh, Michael Jordan at the Hall of Fame speech. What is the dominant theme of 25 minutes of airing grievance when you're the most, arguably the most decorated athlete ever? A lack of self-awareness. That's what comes off a lack of gratitude, a lack of appreciating what you have and what you've done and who's around you listening to you. Whereas losers, look at like the Buffalo Bills after losing four Super Bowls, they were in a city that's, that threw a parade for the losing team. Like that's that's where that community is, given how much loss Buffalo has had to deal with economically, industry and all of that. They could appreciate and celebrate their guys for their effort, which almost seems un-American in many ways, right? Like we don't like dealing with losers. No, like, don't even say participation trophy. Somebody will lose their fucking <laughs> mind, you know? 
Well, no, it's true. But I mean, I, I often think with participation trophies, it's interesting because it's a cudgel for the right. But who has the ultimate participation trophies? It is the right. If you're in the military, if you're in the police, if you're religious, you win. It's the ultimate participation trophy, right? Like you're suddenly, you're amazing until proven otherwise, just by joining, not by any of your actual conduct. And and so, and yet they shit on the left for doing it with your, you know, Mr. Rogers, you're special. It's interesting, the, the symmetry between the two. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's its own podcast, needless to say, but yeah, it's, uh, but it, but it does fit into that kind of like the ability to morph um, that into your narrative, the ability to kind of assign whatever explanation or excuse you want, you know, if you in, morphing the reality to your beliefs, like you said, uh, not necessarily changing your beliefs based on new information as any reasonable and intelligent person should do, but instead digging your heels in and saying, nope, actually this act, this only just proves what I believed even more, you know, and that's, yeah. and that's kind of, I think what we might have seen perhaps with Prince Hamed, obviously I have no basis to believe that, but I, in, in any case, what clearly did happen was that the hunger for wanting to achieve whatever more it was, was pretty much gone, which is kind of interesting in itself. Cause if he's 27 years old, it's a very magic number when it comes to celebrities and the death of things. And that was really the death of his desire and his hunger uh, in his career. I came up with that. God, kind of poetic here. Jeez. <laughs> no, but, you know, it, it really is, though, because uh, you see everything that he's talking and it's like everything's so grand, all of his ideas and his plans for himself and his life and his career and his greatness. And it's just poof, you know, and it's it's difficult for me to believe that it was only Barrera that did that. You know, obviously he played a massive role, but there was so much going on. Um, and so people were waiting for the return of Nassim Hamed for a while. And he did wind up returning, but it was so, uh, it, it was, wah, wah. it was, that was basically the embodiment of the wah, wah sound. It was underwhelming. He didn't look very good. He had a difficult time getting back into shape. He talked about the fact that he didn't really seem very motivated, et cetera, et cetera. He fought a dude who was not very well known. Um, yeah. It, and that was it. I think that it was, he petered out, you know, he, he faded out rather rather than burning out he faded away so that was kind of uh where a lot of people got left with him on the other hand Barrera you really used this this fight that he was supposed to use or to lose as a springboard to a, a second and third career that's right and I mean yeah you I mean you mentioned Hamad fought once more May of 2002 back in London against uh, Manuel Calvo who was pretty you know fairly distinguished 33 wins four losses um for an ibo world featherweight title i bet it was the only fight that hamed was ever booed he won it 120 to 110 119 to 109 on two scorecards and was booed overwhelmingly and i thought that's interesting because hamed like again go back to all of these fights that are watch his highlight reel watch the kelly fight watch the barrera the intensity of the crowd is electric he is electric. You can't take, he's so charismatic. He's so unusual in what he brings to bear in the ring and outside of the ring. And even the documentaries, I liked him. Like, even though he's kind of, it's performative, but I'm just like, this is really interesting. But you could see the smirk though, is the yeah, thing. Yeah, you can. You because, can. Because he's not able, just like Ali, 
he's not able to play it straight all the time. No, he's and not. so like, you know, he says something about, oh, I'm the greatest. And then he goes, <laughs> you know, he's got the smirk because he knows, he knows it's a performance. He knows that it's not real. It's not true. He's, he's winking at you. You're right. And the wink is endearing. There's something in him where you like, and now that you see him and he's like a rotund little guy, um, he doesn't have this bravado. He's very supportive of other British fighters when you see him at events. He's pro-boxing. He's pro these fighters from his country. I don't hear him really shitting on anybody. He's not a troll. And you're kind of like, oh, it's wrestling. It's just wrestling. And he does it really, really well. And I didn't give him credit for it because I thought he was this guy. I thought he was exactly. this, this much of an asshole. Whereas with Floyd, I was thinking, how many of Floyd's huge fights was he booed throughout and he enjoyed the booing? Not only has he taken your money, but he's taken your money when you begrudgingly gave it to him because you just wanted to watch him lose. And he was thrilled by it. That was the ultimate satisfaction. And so I just thought it's interesting yeah. that Ahmed leaves his career, you know, 21 years ago being booed for the first time because he looks sluggish and uninterested in his fight. And he gives an interview with B the BBC where he talks about the reasons for his retirement. He was reluctant to announce his retirement formally for many years, which is weird in boxing, uh, especially where everybody's retirement crazy, you know, where they get, they get retired nine times or whatever, um, but talks about having these chronic problems with his hands, multiple fractures. So it's not just this one going into Barrera, but multiple and Andre Ward made a big point to tell me that the injuries you know that I've had are not the full extent of the injuries that I have had. And he said, I don't think that's uncommon with great fire. We don't want people to know our weaknesses because that's a massive liability. It puts a target on our back. It would be yeah. something that would galvanize people to come after us. So multiple fractures as well as surgery. And then he just recedes into a quiet life away from the sports. I mean, this fight, he made $6 million with Barrera that we've been talking about. I mean, think about that. This is, you know, 22 years ago. He was that popular. I mean, Mayweather, as we mentioned, yeah, is as a featherweight, away. too. As a featherweight, two years away, Mayweather from fighting Castillo. What did he make fighting Castillo? I bet he didn't make $6 million. I don't think he made anywhere close to that for fighting Castillo. Rafael Marquez and Israel Vasquez had to fight four times to get a million dollar payday only on the fourth fucking time yeah and I mean, another that. thing and another thing we're not talking about with hamed is outside of the fight purses he was extremely lucrative with endorsements in 1997 four That's years right. before this fight he was making 14 million dollars a year of total annual income with endorsements um, which ranked him 22nd on Forbes' list of the highest-paid athletes in 97. In 99, his net worth was 38 million pounds. So, and by January 2001, 50 million pounds. So think about that, where boxing, outside of boxing, we just don't know who the heavyweight champions are. Hamed, you know, from England with wearing a law on his trunks and everything like that was still this marketable because of what he created as a character. And, and I, yep. I don't think he gets a lot of, of that credit. And, um, and then there's a big issue just to kind of close this out in 2006, a driving offense. I mean, 
you're on my favorite fighter, Bobby Chez, moving into this. I mean, we're talking about all the, the genius of his marketing. Got to be careful if you're close to genius as a boxer, as we know. I mean, thank God he wasn't tested for Mensa. Thank goodness. Come because, up positive for Mensa, you're in big trouble. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a apparently a horrible accident that he gets into where he is responsible for an accident that fractures, quote, every major bone in the victim's body, including bruising to the brain, multiple hospitalizations, and... Um, and Hamad had to do some time in prison. He was sentenced to 15 months in jail and four years from driving. Kind of amazing to me that you get a four-year suspension from your driver's license for almost killing somebody. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they got some different shit in the UK, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was another thing. And just just after his career was over, where I think he probably the biggest incident in relation to his his legacy. So... And then this massive weight gain, which just looks sort of as it does with an Elvis Presley or Jim Morrison near the end or, or several other features. You just think, what's going on that's responsible for that? It's just a little a little unusual. I'm not trying to fat shame. I'm not trying to – I'm just wondering somebody who's a world-class athlete where they have to be 120 pounds, um, something pretty big was going on, um, presumably – to to lead to to such an unhealthy position in their life like he he is morbidly obese so yeah. he doesn't and he doesn't seem ashamed of it or anything like he's hiding from being in public but he's become one of those sort of like for for the uk like a tmz target for like oh my god look at him now sort sort of people and i don't know what's responsible for it i'm not going to speculate but i but you you wonder a little bit yeah, you obviously do wonder, especially knowing what we know about the kind of psychology of fighters and knowing what we believe we know about the psychology of fighters. Um, and I mean, you know, you probably went through a withdrawal or depression or whatever. You know, we talked about fighters kind of being addicted to fighting, and there's not just the fighting that you get addicted to. You get used to the routine. You get used to the diet. You get used to all these sorts of things that you're living. And when that abruptly changes, you know, like you said, that can change your body. I know that lately in the last few years, he's not quite as big as he had been, but he got really, he got quite large there for a while. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's good that he's not as big. But the one of the uh, final kind of postscripts about this fight, too, that I forgot was, was that this was one of the final, I'd have to look because I'm not positive, but I know it was one of the final TV KO broadcasts. After that, they switched to HBO pay-per-view. Um, or they've rebranded or whatever is HBO pay-per-view. Um, and so, yeah, this was kind of the one, you know, Marco Antonio Barrera rung in HBO boxing after dark and also kind of rung out TV KO in a way. So it was kind of interesting in that regard too. And like I said before, he, he clearly went on and carried on his career and even is still now fighting exhibitions and looks, I mean, all things considered looks absolutely fantastic, but is kind of a sour dude when it comes to appreciating other fighters, it seems, based on the podcasts he's been on. But, yeah. you know, I guess he's earned it. Well, and I, and I think just the other thing to consider here is that if there wasn't the character that, that the prince created, do we get Tyson Fury in quite the same way? Do we get Conor McGregor in quite the same way? Do we get Money Mayweather in quite a, the same way? It's a way? fair question. It's, it's a, a fair, fair question. question. Because he predates all of them. 
in terms of this marketable character that people are, especially Americans, are really willing to pay to watch lose. I need to see that guy's mouth shut. And I, I understand you could say, well, Muhammad Ali did the same thing. He he took from Gorgeous George in wrestling, um, this persona where he knew that, like, Ali, Cassius Clay got booed a lot for his style. Like, I mean, er, early on, we forget that because, we oh, my God, he's the greatest fighter ever. Who could do what he's doing? But a lot of people, like with Floyd, like we're mentioning, go back and watch those fights. Watch how regularly rounds are booed for what he's doing. Nobody's suggesting that it's bad. Like in terms of like, it's really hard to do what he's doing. It's just, I don't want to pay to watch LeBron James lay the ball up. I want to see him dunk. So if you're that good, do something spectacular. Nassim was somebody who wanted to do something spectacular. Plus he wanted to sort of cover the other side where you are, you feel that tension that you want to see somebody shut him up. When he's smiling, when he's grinning, when he's doing backflips, when he's somersaulting into the ring, he's doing all of these things where you're going, what the fuck? Who the fuck is this guy? I want to see somebody take this guy out. And he he wins you over anyway with just, just his supreme talent and chutzpah and everything. So uh, I hadn't really given him that credit in terms of without him, I don't, without him in the DNA of a lot of other heels in boxing, I don't know if you get them quite the same way. Like this little guy punched way above his weight in terms of cultural impact in the sport. And, and I think he could back it up too. But on the other hand, this is an interesting crucible for what it is with Mark, Marco Antonio Barrera. I just think it requires a bunch of caveats about it that is not taking away from Barrera's achievement, but you shouldn't take away from who Hamed could have been also. Because I think he could have been that. It just didn't work out that way. I agree. Yeah, it's uh, obviously with the benefit of hindsight, so many years now between what had happened and both fighters going on to you know do what they did or not do what they did, um, we're able to just see a far more complete picture of what happened. And so, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with recognizing that all of these things are true, that Barrera is a great fighter and that he's a greater fighter than Hamed, but that Hamed can still be, if not a great fighter, then a very, very good fighter. But you could also kind of allow for these extenuating outside circumstances. You can recognize them and acknowledge them as being true in reality and affecting the outcome of the fight, but still also appreciating Barrera and giving him acknowledgement for doing what he did. So you know, these things can all work just fine. Is I think that's the difficulty that a lot of people have is they have to be dismissive of something. They have to be dismissive of Hamed because he always sucked or dismissive of Barrera because it was all of these out, outside factors. So, you know, it's okay to accept all of these things, basically. Because they can both be true. That's the other thing, is they can both... Barrera fought his heart out and absolutely deserved this victory, no question. But you also should not be dismissive of what Hamed... What, he was not hype. I think he really had the goods. I just... I think it's sort of... Certain people are like this. I think Tyson was like this. Tyson is kind of simultaneously supremely overrated and supremely underrated because people want to take one side of the career on both sides of the being away in jail and right, say, yeah, ah, yeah. that's the real him. And they're both kind of true. Yeah, they're all the real him. It's just different versions, you know? That's that's right. That's right. And, and, and some people are able to transcend. Ali could 
not be the great dancer with the tremendous reflexes and everything and show you another side to what made him the greatest. But would that young guy, um, like, like should, should that be the real him? I don't know. I mean, these are arguments that you can, you can have with old timers all the time where I'm like, I, I do it with Tom Hauser all the time. How can you possibly say that the young Tyson wouldn't present more problems to Ali than Joe Frazier? What the fuck are you talking about? And he'll still, he'll still say, I think Joe Frazier, you know, like, like, I don't agree. I, I don't see Ali having any problems with, with, Fra with Tyson sort of thing. Okay. But then my eyes are just completely deceiving me because Tyson could do everything better than Frazier, but didn't have the character, did not have the character of Joe Frazier. So how much should that play a role? I don't know. But in my opinion, yeah. So that's what you got to figure out, you know, that's it. That's it. So I, I just like going back to this and, and the documentaries and everything. I think Hamed is one of the great fighters of all time. I think in terms of what he had, I don't think he was able to give what he had to be one of the great fighters of all time, which is important. Greatness is always defined by what is given, not what one had. And, and that is the conundrum of, of Prince Nassim Hamad. You know, we, we did this, this podcast here and some people are going to listen or watch it, watch into this episode and their opinion still isn't going to change. We talked about that even on the show, you know, having a, <laughs> having a, you know, something of a monolith of, a, of an opinion, which I don't know that we're necessarily out to change opinions per se, but look, you know, uh, there are going to be people who even after watching this or listening to it are going to say, doesn't matter. You know, I, Hamed was shit. I don't give a fuck. Why are you guys talking about Hamed? Or why? Are you, or some might say, why are you talking about Barrera? He's a dick. Whatever. I don't know. But you know, the point being is, you know, we're trying to kind of just get a, a fuller view, a fuller view of everything that happened, and trying to get a slightly more objective view of what happened. So, dude, I appreciate you taking the time to to watch the the documentaries and just get some perspective and rewatch the fight and whatnot, dude. Because it does take time, and even though it's fun, you know, it's a little bit of work. He was thrilling, and I, I absolutely despised him. When my the twenty year old me watching this fight in real time, fucking hated him, and totally. I kind of fell in love with who he was as a fighter. I just was like, what a what a great question mark to see that guy and what he could have done against Lomachenko if they were in their their absolute primes, because he just is incapable of making a fight that isn't thrilling to watch when he's at his best. Because he the better he is, the more chances he's taking. Yeah. And show me another great fighter where that's true. And I'll show you somebody on the pantheon of the greatest of all time. And the assets that he has are absolutely all time there in terms of punching power, in terms of his offense. And I think even his defense just to create reckless, brilliant fights. Um, he, he's got everything to make scintillating fights. And you know, if, if we look back at some of the all-time greatest fights, it doesn't necessarily include the greatest fighters, right? And and this guy could do both. And that's what makes it the what might have been so interesting and captivating. Yeah, it's pretty cool, dude, especially for a lot of people who might be a little bit younger. So they might not know, you know, they might not have lived through the Nassim Hamed era and just kind of are uh, assuming. So go back and watch that stuff because he might he might surprise you. It might surprise you, but everybody who listened in to this episode, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much. 
Uh, if you did listen in whatever podcast app you listened in through, please go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review or comments. One of those things. If you did watch on YouTube, thank you as well. And hello, subscribe, leave a comment. We'll try to reply back. As far as social media goes, the Knuckles and Gloves podcast is both on Facebook and Instagram, but it's also on Twitter too, at least uh, while Twitter is not imploding because it's from it's day to day at this point, folks. You know, I'm just letting you know. So <laughs> we're there on Twitter though, but individually we're also on Twitter. My boy Bryn is on Twitter as Brynicio, B-R-I-N-I-C-I-O. And me, Patrick Connor, I'm on there as Patrick M. Connor. So say hello and we'll try to say hello back. Bryn, talk soon, bro. Yeah, and, and for anybody curious, Menza.org is where you can find Bobby Chez or on the roads somewhere, probably in New Jersey. Send out the bat signal for us by hashtagging blame Bobby. (laughs) All right, everybody. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.